Today in the Attorney Career Advice Podcast with Harrison Barnes. So law firms really need to believe that you want to commit. If you stick around and you don't leave and you commit, pretty much what they need to see. Anybody, by the way, can get a job. If you can't get a job in these best firms, you have to apply to the smaller firms. When you're looking for a job, you need to do the best you can. What are the best ways to respond to questions about fields in which you want to practice but don't have any experience? Asking to a recent lawyer who finished a clerkship. If you don't have any experience, there's really nothing you can say other than I'm interested in that. I'm excited to learn. I'm a team player. I'll work on whatever you need to be, that sort of thing. So that's really, in my opinion, the best way to answer that kind of question. You don't have to, you're finishing a clerkship. There's no reason why you should be expected to have a certain type of experience. Most people that do clerkships are going in directly into some sort of commercial litigation if it's a or if they're tax clerk or bankruptcy, they would go into tax or bankruptcy. But you're not expected to have any type of special type of clerk experience if you're doing a clerkship. Everybody knows what clerks do, so there's nothing really that you need to worry about too much. And if they're asking about practice areas you don't understand, you, there's no reason you should understand them. Just expressing eagerness to work in a certain types of firms and, and to stick around there. I mean, that you're, I'm sorry, that you're tra- well, open to learning and you're not set in your ways is really the best way to answer that. Okay, so this question. Okay, what are the, what if empl- when an employer says long-term, what do they mean? I would like to work somewhere for about three years and then reevaluate. Okay, again, the whole idea of not thinking something or you'll show it is important. And, and what I mean by that is if you think that you would only want to work someplace three years, then somehow you'll go in and and you'll telegraph that by the type of answers you make and by your level of commitment. And and fortunately, you're welcome to think that way. But the people that are going to do well in any law firm are going to be the people that actually go in and have goals. And their goal is to be a partner and it's never going to change. When I was in college, there was a woman that was a, I know, a year, a girl, was about a year above me. And her goal since she'd been in high school was to be a federal district court judge. And she did everything she could to do that. She worked as hard as she could for her grades. She got in the best law school she could. She clerked and I think went to the Supreme. Some people just, they set goals. And if you have goals, you're going to do a lot better than if you don't. And so long-term means if you're an employer, you're going to want to hire someone that's likely to stick around. Because if you hire people that aren't going to stick around, you're going to have to hire new people. It's going to be an inconvenience to your clients. You're going to have to, there's just a lot of problems and things that this will cause. And, and they'll have to train someone else. It could lower the morale of the firm when you leave or your practice group. So law firms really need to believe that you want to commit. And it's true. If they, when they hire people, they hire someone, when you look at a resume, uh, someone leaves, there's certain people, like if they leave, they've been at their last job for five years, they'll take their next job and they may stay there five years. Or if they're at their last job 15 years, they'll stay at their next job 15 years. So the idea is you want to be able to work someplace long term and you want to and give that impression. So you need to go into interviews thinking like that. I want to, I realize how important it is to stay to try to make things work. I understand that people often leave for dumb reasons. I don't want to do that. I want to do things work. What is it? What is, what do people do well that, that stick with this and that sort of thing? I was at a firm when I was in my, when the second firm I was at, I was at a party and this associate was coming up and joking with a partner about that that office, it was a New York office, of an LA office of a New York law firm, that they never made any partners. And the partner was said, that's because everybody leaves. Nobody sticks around. And 
It's like that in most firms. If you stick around and you don't leave and you commit, that's pretty much what they need to see. It's often a lot more at different firms, but that's what's important. So you need to come in with that kind of attitude. Very important. And the law firms need to believe that you're like that. And how you communicate to that them is up to you. But Do you want to grow your legal career? A lateral move might be the right choice to get you on track for your career goals. Working with a legal placement firm like BCG Attorney Search can open doors for you and help you live the life you dream of. If you're looking for a new legal job, send us your resume so we can help. Visit www.bcgsearch.com and click on Submit Resume to be paired with one of our legal placement professionals who will work tirelessly on your behalf to get you your dream legal job. Submit your resume to www.bcgsearch.com to get started today. Born and educated lawyer with 20 years of experience, passed the bar exam, and relocated to the U.S., okay? I've done many litigations in the past and like to apply to a litigation associate with a law firm. Does it make sense even trying, given my associate? Yes, of course it makes sense. So anybody, by the way, can get a job. It's anyone can. It's just what are you, what type of jobs are you trying to get? So you have, again, your five firms, four firms, three firms, two firms, one firms. In terms of leverage, these firms can hire anyone they want, anyone, because they pay high salaries. And this is the mistake that foreign attorneys make when they come over to the U.S. Same here. Not so much, but still selective. But when you start talking about your more consumer-facing firms, not a lot of money most times. All these firms do litigation, but no one applies to them. I don't know why. You don't even need to, you don't even need to apply to some of these firms with you can just apply to them. So you don't, if you're a foreign, this is what I would love to give a class on how foreign attorneys job in the US if they take bars and pass. But the point here is these law firms can really hire, most foreign attorneys will apply to these big firms and not the smaller firms. And so if you are applying to the smaller firms, you can always get a job. So the idea is with a foreign attorney though, that I just want you to make sure everyone understands is, and this is for any attorney, if you have characteristics in your background, which should be a foreign attorney, you're very senior, you're, you have problems or things that are wrong in your background, you can always get a job. The problem that people make is they are the problems that people cause for themselves. This is what foreign attorneys do all the time too. They apply to just the largest firms. And of course, they don't get jobs because the firms are worried about them sticking around or their training or, or whatever. So the only way to, for anyone to get a job, if you can't get a job in these best firms, is to apply to the smaller firms. And so you can apply to firms that work for businesses, which are very hard to get into, or you can apply to firms that work for individuals, which are less hard to get into. So my point to you is that when you're looking for a job, you need to do the best you can to try to get into the, the right firms. And, and this is really, and you don't want to necessarily try to apply to the biggest firms. Now, you won't make as much money. But why should you? You're not, you're competing with people that, frankly, that may be more likely to stick around or whatever and, or have more relevant experience. So you need to start at the bottom. And this is what a lot of people that are in this kind of your position don't do. It's crazy to me. Every year, there's all these LM programs that people go to and where they spend 100,000 plus per year to get an LM. And then they take the bar and then they try to get jobs in all the same firms. They just, Maybe they apply to all the big firms that do international arbitration. I don't know, but and then they don't have any success, and then they're sad and they go back to their home country. This is not something that needs to happen. The only thing you need to do is just apply to the right size firm. So you apply to smaller firms 
that are less selective. And of course, and you take less money, but you get a job and you can always build yourself up. If you get a job at a one firm, you can learn skills and get jobs at a two firm later, and then maybe a three firm and maybe even a four firm once you get business and that sort of thing. So there's nothing wrong with starting out at a small firm. And especially if you're going to get a job that way, this is the the smartest thing you can possibly do. And so you need to get a job. So you can't, if you go through all the expense and time of getting a position in a, in a large firm and getting an OLM and taking the bar, the only thing you need to do to get a job is just go someplace that's going to pay you less money and where there's not going to get a lot of applications and do the best you can. That's it. I mean, but so many people, I don't understand it. They take a year of their life and then or more and get an LM and then try to get a job in the big firms and the big firms, of course, you're not going to get a job. It's very hard. Now, some people do. It happens all the time, but it's less frequent than a smaller firm. A smaller firm would be very easy, but no one applies to them. So that's how I would respond to that. Yeah. So this question is, are there any unconventional approaches? Are there any unconventional, unique or unconventional approaches attorneys can take during second round interviews to differentiate themselves from other candidates? Yes. So most candidates are going to go in and they won't ask this question. Most people will not ask, what would what would blow you away? Or you wouldn't use that. What would I need to do to look like best associate or whatever you've ever hired in my first 90 days? Something along that line. Put yourself in the employer's shoes. They want to hire someone who's going to come out of the gate really strong. So this is the kind of question. And there's a bunch of, you could say, it doesn't have to be 90 days. It could be a year, differentiate myself. What does it take to, what are the best qualities of people? So people, that kind of question is going to really take people off. It's really going to catch people off guard because most people do not talk like that or think like that. They go into interviews and they, they think they don't ask questions like that and they don't put themselves in the point of in the, the shoes of the employer. Now, that's not the kind of question you would want to ask an associate if you're an associate, but that's the kind of question you would want to ask partner. And, and then when you hear it, just say, that's great. And this is, that's exactly what I try to do. And, and that sort of thing. You have to put yourself in the employer and think in terms of what would they like to hear. Building rapport with interviewers is often seen as a valuable skill. From your experience, what are some effective ways to establish connection with interviewers during second round interviews? And how can this positively impact the outcome of the interview? Okay, so rapport, I, I would read, read up on rapport because there's a lot of ways to establish rapport. Rapport, and I'll talk a little bit about it, and I'm going to get a little off-center here. Rapport, you know, how to do it. So rapport is often established. What is it called? There's something called NLP, which is actually interesting. It's called neuro-linguistic programming. And this is something that Tony Robbins and a lot of people study and are, really think is important. So what that means is it's pretty simple. You talk in the same tone, talk, talk in the same tone, and same tone. You imitate, you sit the same way, do certain sit, I don't know, you get the idea. Talk in the same way, sit the same way, or and you basically pace the person that's interviewing you. So what that means is if your interviewer is talking quite loud, you would also talk quite loud. If you're talking very softly, you would talk quite softly. If they're sitting in their chair like this, you might sit the same way. Or if they're sitting, this is one of the ways that people are taught to, to build rapport. You can read about this. That's certainly one way to build rapport. It's, it's actually very effective once you learn it and pretty interesting. And it actually works. 
and there's lots of classes and, and things on it. And so it's something that you can get good at if you learn about it. But so that's NLP. But then how do you talk? How do you establish rapport? You try to talk, you try to figure out what the person's interested in or what they like, and you talk to them about those sorts of things. And you, and that would be, you show an interest in the topics they seem interested in. You talk along the lines that they're interested in. There's so much about rapport that I could get into, but you have, there's, there's people that are visual, there's people that are auditory. This is kind of going off the deep end here, but I'll just do a little bit of this auditory. And then there's people that are kinesthetic, but there's people that are auditory and kinesthetic. And, and essentially what that means is if someone who's visual will say things like, do you see what I mean? What I mean? Do you, how does that look? And so they'll talk in terms of seeing things. And people that are auditory will say, talk in terms of hearing, you know, and then people that are kinesthetic will talk in terms of feeling. So you can pick up people pretty quickly. This is very sophisticated interview techniques. And I, I don't know why I'm going into such depth here, but this stuff actually works. I probably should be an entire course. But the idea is that um, if you, when you're talking to someone, they will always, you'll always be able to tell very quickly. You want to match their tone of voice. You want to pace them if they move in their chair. People get very good at this. I'm not going to instruct you on how to do all this right now because it's just a lot, but these are the basics. And then, so you do that in terms of the way they're sitting and pacing. And, but you also have to learn how to talk to people. So if people are saying, I hear what you're saying. That means they're auditory. If they're saying, I can feel what you mean. It felt, this felt bad. This felt good. Uh, that's kinesthetic. So you can usually pick up when people are doing that. And then you start even trying to pace your, your statements and things saying, feel they're kinesthetic or I don't know, but you get the idea. So this is what very sophisticated people do. You shouldn't have to learn all this to do it. But if you're asking me how to really build rapport, this is how you would do it. So I would read about NLP. I'd read about these different types of ways of seeing things or feeling things and and try to pace things that way. It works. People will like you. They won't even know why. And, and it's a very valuable thing. Just reading about it can be very helpful. There's books on LLP. There's probably books on talking to people that are visual and kinesthetic and so forth. It could be fun too. Do you know the secrets to getting your dream legal job? We do. And one of the best things you can do is apply to jobs that fly under the radar. Applying to openings with very little competition means you stand a much higher chance of getting hired. But how do you find openings like that? For starters, you're not going to find them on major job boards because these jobs are usually only advertised on companies' websites and in small regional publications. That is why we created Law Crossing, the most comprehensive database of legal jobs in the world. We have a team of people constantly working to find every single legal job out there. Unlike other job boards, which only list jobs that companies pay to post, we include every legal job we can find in order to maximize your chances of finding a job. So, what are you waiting for? Head over to www.lawcrossing.com to find your dream legal job today. Okay, this question about networking. Okay, I'm actually doing a course right now for law students, and in that course, we talk about a lot about networking. And, and networking, by the way, is incredibly important. This question is networking and building relationships are often crucial in the legal profession. How can attorneys leverage their network and connections during second round interviews to demonstrate their potential value to the firm or organization? So you need to be careful with networks during interviews. So you don't want to be seen as someone that's 
trying to get a job just based on their network, or based on using the network and dropping names and that sort of thing. You need to be very careful with that. The reason why is because people will do things all the time. Like they, like I used to, people will apply to a firm through a friend. And, but many times that friend is someone that could be on the way out. It's not liked or you don't know. And so you have to be very careful uh, with that. Many times it's not the same, but it's always the case because it's not. But, and then you're also asking networking, your networking connections during second round interviews. And that may mean if you're trying to give the impression that you know someone and you can bring in business or something, you're welcome to do that. But most law firms, unless there's actual business there, aren't going to pay a lot of attention to it. But I did want to just bring up one thing about networking because, and this is very important, the ABA, I think it's the ABA, has done a study. And I don't know if it's true or not, but it says something like 80% of all jobs are gotten, all legal jobs are gotten through networking. Now, is that true or not? I believe it probably is. I don't know if it's entry-level jobs. I don't think it applies to that. I don't know that it applies to all law firm jobs. But that's a pretty major, major thing. So if you have a really good network, you can certainly put that in and use that to get a position. Very helpful and something that you should be aware of that a really good network can help you get a position. Something that's extremely important, obviously. And the better your network, the more likely um, it is for you to be able to get a job through that network. Developing a network and building relationships on an ongoing basis is very important. Why do networks work for getting jobs? The reason they work is because no one trusts each other. And so if people trust you and they have a reason to trust you, right when you're walking in the door, they're much more comfortable with you. And it works. I had this experience years ago. I was part of this organization called TED. And back then, there were only a 1,000 members. And uh, but they opened this uh, kind of second TED2 up uh, where they had another 500 members or something. But you didn't get to go to the real, maybe it was a thousand, a thousand, I don't remember. You, you didn't go to the real TED event. You had to go to something where it was like simulcast or I don't know. But so the networking opportunities weren't as good. But I was disappointed in myself for not getting a, a getting in the main one because I had a lot of success at that point. I was companies around Inc. 500 a couple of times and done a lot of things. I don't remember what it was, but felt like I should be part of this thing. And I met someone, and I don't know where I met her at some TED event, but it wasn't the main TED event. And she was from the main organization, and I spent a day with her or something. Just, it wasn't romantic, and I was just talking to her. And she said, well, the only people that get into the real TED are you have to know people, and you have to get recommended by them, and because they only admit people that they trust and all that. And that's how most a lot of organizations work. At our recruiting firm, at one time, point in time, I looked at, and all the people that were working there were people that had been you know, recommended by the recruiters, by other recruiters, and brought in that way because it was much easier to trust them. And so this is just how things work a lot of times. So things function based on networks. And so networks are very important and it's a skill that you should learn. It's not something that you can necessarily take advantage of a second round interview or something. But the better network you build, the better off you're going to be. And, and you really need to take that quite seriously. It's very important. A lot of people's regrets are often in their careers are that they didn't build better networks when they're younger. And these networks can really make a huge difference in how successful you are in the long run if you have a much better network. That is a good question. So can you provide some challenging questions that attorneys might encounter during second round interviews? 
and how should one approach answering them? It's a good question. I think the most challenging questions are things that are related to the things you're not supposed to touch, which are sex, religion, politics, what else? Marriage, marriage, I don't know, anything related to that. These, anything that kind of is about those things can be, is usually very challenging. And even to my astonishment, even with everything that's going on in society and how people still ask these kind of questions, and it can make people very uncomfortable when these kind of things happen and, and not good. What are some examples of that? Someone may have a Catholic or a Mormon school on their resume, and you start talking about Catholicism or with a person and tell them you're of that religion or whatever, and maybe they're on the outs of that religion and don't like it or had horrible experiences with it. You just don't know. And maybe someone that you're interviewing worked for a well-known Democratic or Republican political person. They're no longer that thing. All these sorts of questions, you have to be very careful about taking sides. Taking sides would be, what are some debates in society? They're about things like use of pronouns, use of just don't get involved. You have to just back off and, and try to not take any form of position. Because if you take a position, the person may like you, but you don't know. And maybe they'll tell someone else that has another position th- that won't like you. So you just need to take all of the stuff is to be very careful and you need to avoid taking sides. And you just, you, some people are very good at this, but you have to, you shouldn't smile if someone brings something up like this, or you shouldn't Oh, race. I'm sorry. I forgot about race. Race is a big one. Talking, taking sides on race or anything that could be divisive in society. Those same things are divisive in every employer. So you need to be very careful with that. And this is just, I mentioned this question because it's from last week. And this, and I just I didn't get to it last week. So I usually will answer the next week if I don't get to a question. This said, do you think a dual degree JD MBA will be advantageous when changing fields and demanding more money? Yes. I think if you want to be a corporate attorney and law firms love people that go get MBAs, even it's one of the exceptions where you can leave the practice along, come back. People just law firms like it. It's good to get business training to be able to work with businesses. So people... Those are very popular. Okay. I think I've answered most of the questions, all the questions. I'm going to see if there's any more. Yeah. So that's it. Thank you for the questions. Those were very helpful. And I think those will help a lot of people. Next week, I think, I don't know what the webinar I'm going to do is, but I think one webinar I would really like to do would be talking about the pros and cons of remote versus non-remote work and how you address that, the pros and cons from an employer standpoint, and then also the pros and cons from an attorney standpoint. Because I think that's another issue that people get into a lot of trouble with in interviews and also in applications, uh, but can also be very helpful if it's done right. Thank you very much, everyone, for this webinar. That's all the time we have for this edition of the show. If you are an attorney looking for a change, head on to bcgsearch.com. 